agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. And today, I'm interviewing Lainey Newman, co-author of the new book, Rust Belt Union Blues, Why Working Class Voters Are Turning Away from the Democratic Party from Columbia Press. Lainey is a JD candidate, as a matter of fact, in her second year at Harvard Law and a graduate of Harvard College. Lainey, Welcome to The Politics Guys. Thank you so much, Trey. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, I have to be honest, I was really excited to be the author or the, the, the host that was going to get to do your guys' book. Uh, I, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit of a fan of your co-author. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I didn't know you. But, but you know, when I was in uh, graduate school, as a matter of fact, I have it behind me. Uh, we actually went through uh, uh, Scotch Pole's book. Uh, and so I couldn't help but yeah. be a little bit like, oh, so... Uh, you know, in that case, that was back. That was state and social revolutions. Uh, yeah, it was right, a primary yeah. text for us. I don't. Yeah. Did she teach her own books at Harvard? Did you get to do her own things, or is, is she one of those who kind of shies <laughs> away from her own work? She so she uh, offers samples of her work. Her, <laughs> um, I I took when I was an undergrad. I took her seminar um, on American inequality. And she she in, incorporated a lot of different source material um, and didn't only sort of focus on her own her own work. But um, at, from time to time, she will assign her own her own content, which I think is is great because she's, you know, she's obviously incredibly accomplished and has written on a range of topics, you know, comparative politics to, of course, the Tea Party and, and now unions. So right, right. Well, and, and you too. And so I'll be honest, as a professor, that was the other thing that struck me by the book. And I was just so excited to see, you know, here is uh, a late career professor working with an undergraduate at the time on this text. And so I was wondering, could you kind of talk to me about, uh, you know, that, that doesn't happen every day. So how did the two of you end up working on this project together? What got you to work on a book with Scotchpole? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a it was a crazy process. And I'm I'm still shocked that, you know, I there's a book out there with my name on it. So you're not the only one. Um, well, congratulations so that, on that. Uh. Well, thank you. Um, so yeah, so I, I had been a research assistant for her um, for a good bit of time in college. And then when it came time to write my senior thesis, I approached her, um, I was hoping to write on unions and political realignment. Um, I come from Pittsburgh, uh, where, you know, there's been a lot of union presence and over time and and I have family extended family members who were in the uh, auto workers union um, which currently is of course in the news um, and so I, I wanted to look at sort of why um, why a lot of union members in in the Rust Belt were no longer voting for Democrats um, particularly in these you know industrial or ex-industrial areas and so um, I had taken her course and been her research assistant and I approached her I know that she does a lot on sort of social networks and so I thought that it might be a good a good fit uh, thinking about unions as you know one of the one of the civic organizations that were you know really strong in in the mid 20th century um, and she uh, accepted and and um, we began we began working together and so for the next year or so I was writing my thesis and did some of the sort of groundwork of the book that is now um, that, that has now been published uh, and then after that thesis was finalized and um, you know I, I had gone graded on it and whatever uh, she there there was some talk in the department the gov department um, about it and she asked if I'd want to continue 
working on it and try to sort of expand the scope of, of the argument. And so um, I decided last minute to defer law school for a year um, to see, you know, where this new project would go. And, and uh, I jumped in. And so that for the following year, then we were working together on on the actual book that you you uh, you read. So that was sort of how the whole whole thing played out. I love it. I mean, I, I, I just love the fact that you, you know, that's how you guys connect. And that is such a fun connection with your mentor that you're working on. But I also say that's brave on your part, you know, uh, uh, delaying law school. That's a big deal. Uh, and I mean, that had, that had to be a little nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah. I actually, it, it was a very sort of, um, I, I've, you know, I've been risk averse my my whole life. And so um, I think that it was a little little bit out of the path um, of least resistance, I think. But I'm so glad I did. I'm, I'm glad that I took the risk. And, um, you know, I learned so much throughout the process uh, beyond, you know, just beyond actually publishing the book. But um, having the experiences just has been invaluable. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad you took the, the risk. Too, because then I wouldn't have gotten to read this book otherwise. And, and I think this is some really excellent scholarship. I just want to start with Thank that. Nice. And, and so, you know, I know we're going to get some in the weeds, but I always kind of like starting when I'm, when I'm interviewing authors to just kind of do the, the summation. So I'm going to try to sum, sum, sum your book up a little bit here. Yeah. And then you tell me how wrong I am. Okay. And then you, <laughs> you fill in the gaps, right? <laughs> I'll be got the it, student. Okay. Uh, so if, I'm, if I was going to do this to listeners and you are on the show, I would say, look, uh, you know, the, the paradox at the heart of your book is how can union country be Trump country? You were kind of getting that even earlier. And it seems to me as, I, as I've read your, as your text is that the answer is we need to look at what a true union man was. And when you look at what a true union man was uh, by the mid 20th century, he is primarily, as you guys argue, this dense web of social connections and voting Democrat is part of that web of social uh, connection. And so then as unions begin to break down those those webs are replaced by other groups that include the Tea Party and gun clubs, and therefore the ideological positions that the union man had before then come out differently because we're more those identities are primary in these new social webs. So in short, social connections drive those deep political outcomes. So the people are more or less the same, but the outcomes are different because those webs being different. How did I do? Uh, that was beautiful. I think that's better than I could have done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take um, that. Yeah, yeah. No, Listen, I, I still like getting my A plus when I can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that was a, that was a great summation. Um, yeah, I, I I would just add that I think yeah. I mean, we look at not only unions but these other organizations that were present in in union communities and and how influential they were and how you know union members influenced one another. Um, and it was never really about sort of the top down instruction to vote Democrat. Um, it was more about reinforcing those uh, sort of mutual um, mutual networks and mutual relationships throughout the community. So, um, yeah, and in, in a lot of ways, I think that you're that you completely, you know, hit the nail on the head by saying that the people maybe haven't changed. It's just these, you know, these networks in these communities really have. No, and, and, and I kind of love that your your take on that. And so, so to kind of get into some of the questions about the book and kind of as we move forward, you know, one of the things that you hammer, Eleni, again and again is, is that, you know, union workers, they always had these other ideological positions. 
So, you know, they were largely often gun owners. They often had, and you, you guys go into some detail on this, had some pretty sexist and uh, uh, racist, racist views. But because of the social web, right, and part of that web, and you're right, it's not just unions, but it's kind of more local churches and these other local entities. Uh, it, it prioritized their advocacy difference. So talk to us a little bit about this concept of how social ties drive politics and, and for listeners and kind of lay out that argument. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that both Sita and I um, come from a place of of uh, believing that, you know, our surroundings um, are our real the realities that we experience, our circumstances, um, the networks that we're part of shape not only our political views, um, but also our, you know, our, our sense of self. Um, and so I think that, you know, what we were looking at is when those things change, when circumstances, surroundings, um, networks change, um, what is the impact on on the on the outcome, which is in, in, in our case, in our book, like voting, voting trends. Um, and so I think that our, um, you know, our our argument is that social networks, um, the, the groups that we're part of, uh, influence us, whether we think that they do or not. And, um, when those, when those groups change, it, so do our, so, so can our, our beliefs. Um, so I think that underlying that whole idea is just a sense that, um, you know, identity is something that is adaptable, right? So our social identities are adaptable. Um, they respond to uh, to our environments. Um, and so, yes, when people were getting uh, messages not only from conservative groups or, or, or um, entities, but also from more liberal groups and, and really valued their membership in, in those groups um, and derived value from that, uh, from, from those groups, that served as a counterweight to some of those more conservative influences. And as you said, there's always been a lot of sort of con conservative cultural views amongst this population. Um, and, and the thing that's different um, that we've noticed is that, you know, what are the groups that are still present um, and, and what are the influences that are still there? Uh, and so, you know, there's a huge difference now compared to to several decades ago. Um, so that that sort of, I think, is lays out a little bit of the theoretical underpinning of, of our of our argument. Now, I'm going to be honest, right? I mean, the other area that was something that I really focused in on was I teach data analysis. And so I am both a, I'm a mixed methods guy, right? I love qual, I love quant. So my class, I teach both. And I know, you know, in the academic world, I've already made like everybody mad and that's fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's just the way it is. And it was, it was, it was so just apropos the timing uh, of when the book came to me, because I was just telling my students, look, in the real world, you're either going to have to be a qual or you're going to have to be a quant. And, and it's kind of hard. And I was re re relaying some messages from graduate school on that front. And then just a few late days later, as I get into your guys' book, and I thought, oh, here it is. Here's a mixed method. <laughs> you know, here's a mi mixed method. This is where you're doing qual, you're doing quant. So I actually brought it to the class. I'm like, see, here it is. Here it is. This is what I was talking about. <laughs> And so I was, I was more excited than they were, I'm sure. But, uh, <laughs> because of it, you know, but yeah. for your book and for listeners, right, the thing that's really new is, is that you guys did 50 in-depth, open-ended interviews in West, Western mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, right? 
And, and that in and of itself is kind of I'm curious about. But what did those interviews look like? Uh, you know, I mean, you kind of talked about that and lay it out in the book. But what even got you to doing the interviews as being the way at getting at these webs that you're talking about? Was it because it's the same people? I, I was just kind of curious how you got there. And then at the same time, because again, now, now we're going to get really wonky, right? How did you guys, once you decided to do the interview style, how, how did you remain neutral, that kind of scientifically scholarly method? You know, because you're obviously going to know these people pretty well, given what I've seen from what some of those answers are in the book. So talk to us about, you know, how did you get to those interviews? How did it end up being 50? Why 50? And, you know, all the fun stuff that goes along with that. Yeah, sure. Um, well, so I'm, I'm so glad that you thought that the book was a good example of um, combining the qualitative and quantitative methods. I think that um, both Theta and I think, you know, think that the methodology has a lot of value. Um, e each methodology and all the sort of sub methodologies within them offers a lot of value and insight uh, into different into different perspectives on the same phenomena, right? Um, and so when I started the project, um, Theta, before, before I sort of created a hypothesis or, you know, really laid out my, you know, my own, you know, idea of what was going on, Theta said, go, go out and look at the data, go out and, and, and see what's out there. I remember her saying that. <laughs> um, and so go see what's out there. Um, and, and I think for me, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a quantitative you know, computer science type person. That's my, you know, that's my sister actually. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to talk to people. I wanted to hear people's experiences. Um, and I wanted to sort of understand from their perspective. And I think the best way to do that, um, from, from, you know, where I was coming from as a student, student, uh, was to, to see, you know, whoever could talk to me, I would talk to, um, you know, and so I, I think that the 50, I think we had a couple more over 50. It was, I think it was a, around 50. Um, but, uh, we used, a we kind of tried to, tried to navigate different communities. Um, and so when we talked to one person, we would say, Hey, you know, it's the snowballing method. Hey, is there anyone, you know, do you have a friend, um, in the local that you, you would, you, know, you could refer me to? Um, and in that sense, there's a, a little bit of trust established by some sort of common, um, you know, the, the, the go between person, right. Um, the middleman is someone who the next person knows. Um, and, 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 and sometimes it was, you know, just reaching out to to leadership member to to leadership of different local unions. Um, and I actually I started um, talking. My, my very first interviews were with some of the high ranking members. Um, so some of the actual you know leaders of, of, of an international. I, I won't say which one, but one of the large industrial uh, unions. Um, so I talked to those people on the sort of leadership, you know, really high level first. And I was like, this isn't you know this isn't giving me what I need. I need to I need to talk to the rank and file to figure out yeah. what what really is going on. And so, um, you know, trying to sort of just, <laughs> I think that once you get in, um, to, to one person, then it becomes a little bit easier, but there were people who sent me lists like, or, you know, phone numbers and, and basically said, um, you know, call, call my friend, you know, Bob, Joe, whatever. Uh, so, you know, referring me and, uh, to, to their friends and, and even to their family members, there were a couple of people who I talked to who, um, you know, father and son, uh, both in the same, working at the same steel mill, uh, um, not at different, actually overlapped a little bit, but at different points for the most part. Um, and so, yeah, I think, that, I think that, you know, 
the interviews give a real sense of um, depth to to the to the research, and then the quantitative can kind of supplement that um, with with looking at some overall trends. Um, so that that's kind of how I would sum it up. Was that something that was hard to do? Because one of the things that I had wondered about was. I mean, I mean, you're a woman, you're an academic, you're writing a book, and, and those aren't necessarily positions that are always going to be particularly like, oh, yeah, I want to I work with this person. Was it hard to do that? Was there a bit of a barrier? Which, were people maybe hostile at first? I, I could at least envision that. Yeah. You don't talk about that. I, I kind of wondered about that in that sense as well. Yeah, I mean, there were there were some instances where people were, were pretty resistant, um, but for the most part, um, people were, were, were open with me. And I, I, I also felt that my identity as a student, as a young woman, um, was actually for the most part an advantage, um, because, uh, people were willing to tell me things, (laughs) honestly, that I don't know if, you know, if this, if I had been, um, older or, you know, I think that, you know, establishing trust with the interviewees was really important. Um, and so, you know, really trying to, to, to build a, a relationship, honestly, um, that, you know, I could, and sometimes I would talk to them multiple times or call them about a question later on. Um, and so I think that people, uh, you know, appreciated for a lot of people expressed their appreciation for me just being interested in, in what had been going on. And that's one of the things that, you know, we, we look at in the book, which is that, some of these people just feel like the history has been for like the steel, you know, history and, um, you know, the pride that a lot of people had in that has been sort of forgotten and, and overlooked. And so I think that a lot of people appreciated it. There were some people who were more, um, you know, resistant to my questions and I would just leave it, you know, I, I didn't, pre- I, I wouldn't press people with, you know, with, you know, being answering questions or, or even talking to me. If they didn't want to do it, then I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't going to try to force them or anything. Um, there was a couple incidents where um, certain types of questions, I think, would get people a little bit, um, you know, would, would frustrate people more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, when I was asking about, well, what do you think about, you know, clean energy? Uh, that was one I remember quite clearly where um, the guy I was talking to got got frustrated and got, got a little bit, um, angry, I guess, about even, you know, how people are talking about this and it's, uh, you know, it's all just, you know, buzzwords and, and not, doesn't actually help anyone in in his community. Um, but for the most part, I would say I had a really good experience. And I think that, you know, being young, being a woman, being, um, being a student at the time for, for some of these interviews was, uh, was helpful, honestly. Okay, well, that, that I wouldn't have thought about that, but I can I can imagine maybe the okay, maybe even that you were kind of alluding there might have said more than I would have if you had walked in and they're like, oh, this is going to be a story tomorrow or something, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? A journalist, or, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, so so one of the things that kind of seems to be, you know, I mean, your title is really about this. Hey, how do you have this shift? And, and you get into that. And we talk about that, and, and and for me, it really is that the idea that. The union being a big part of that social web, those social connections are just uh, uh, such a big part driving political outcomes, voting in the case of the book. And so one of those major ways that you talk about early in the book is the evidence that unions lowered things like racism. 
And you even have this really wild interview quote, uh, I, I had all these notes on, uh, where there's this individual saying effectively, look, yeah, if it wasn't for the union, I would have been all about the KKK, you know? And I'm just like, whoa, yeah. you know, <laughs> not what I was anticipating. And it made me, even yeah. if you thought that, yeah. I didn't think they would necessarily share that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's always curious what people will share. And, and you point to how cent- central that is. And so one of the things that I seem to be taking away from the book was, is look, yeah, Union Man was kind of a sexist, racist person, but the right kind of social connections with the union fixes that. So the problem, I mean, if you want to kind of put it that way that your book is getting at is to say, well, look, here's the, pr- the problem of the Trump voter is that individual doesn't have unions in the middle of his social web. Am, am I getting at that right? And is that kind of a call for the, the validity of, uh, of unions as a mitigating factor against things like sexism, racism, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, look, like, I think that, um, you know, there's been a lot of research done on how unions, uh, you know, just as as institutions uh, decrease racism. And I think that, you know, uh, unions not only in the workplace, but, be, you know, working alongside people who, um, you know, were your brothers and, and who were your equals and who you knew you didn't have to compete with um, for, for, the, for the next day's job, uh, as some, some of my interviewees told me, um, definitely makes made people feel more trusting of one another, of, of people who were, who didn't look like them. Um, I, I would say, you know, I think that, again, we, we, we think that, you know, everyone's beliefs are, are shaped to their environments, um, and are, are, are influenced by their environments and surroundings, um, and the organization, organizations of which they're, part. Um, so I don't know, I mean, I guess the, you know, the underlying union man, um, I don't know if I could if I could say whether that person, um, you know, was or wasn't, uh, you know, a certain I don't know if I could categorize them as, you know, whether this person is sexist or racist. But okay. I think that, you know, there 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 are influences that can ca- serve as a counterweight to those types of really pernicious, um, you know, uh, beliefs. Right. Um, and so I think that the union served as one of those counterweights. Um, and you know, when it, when it went away, you know, that affected how people viewed themselves in relation to society and in relation to their peers, um, and in relation to groups that they, you know, that they felt were the other quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, Again, I don't I don't want to categorize, you know, people as as one thing or another, but I think that the union certainly served as a counterweight um, for for a lot of folks that, you know, when it started fading, that that influence also faded. Yeah. And and to take it even maybe another bit of it is, as you uh, argued earlier on, it wasn't just the union, but it was kind of the union at the at the center of this web of connections. But as the union breaks down, the rest of that web really seems to potentially break down. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, this this was all coinciding with the um, decline in, you know, uh, fraternal groups and civic participation um, and, you know, small local churches. Um, uh, So, yeah, I think that, you know, people felt more isolated in a lot of ways. And there's always going to be a, um, a need to feel, you know, it's a a human, a human need to feel part of something or part of a larger, uh, larger group, larger sort of, um, I guess, uh, you know, just part of something bigger than oneself. And so, um, I think that, you know, when, when those types of 
really tight knit communities faded away, um, the isolation and, and more conservative influences were were able to 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 take more to have more weight, really. And, you know, something else, uh, I mean, it kind of relates to that. And then uh, and then we can kind of change topics a little bit was and I've got it in front of me uh, right now, as a matter of fact, is, is, is your book has just so many wonderful both the art of pictures of artifacts, but then also kind of the written material of artifacts. And I want to talk about both of those. And uh, in, in the center of the book, you have all of these beautiful, like uh, F- Flood City from Johnstown, PA. I'll be honest, uh, just to, to be clear with uh, both you and listeners, uh, you all these mentions of Johnstown. I don't have any connections to Pennsylvania, but my wife does. And so I know tons of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was very, you know, I'm drawn to this in part because of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, on my wife's side of the family, and she was really interested in that too. But I couldn't then help noticing, again, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to all of that. Was like ninety nine percent. That's that's not. I didn't actually do a lot of them. I, let me maybe right first. Exercise. A lot of them uh, uh, were from Scotchpole's personal uh, collection, and so I couldn't help yeah. but be left wondering a little bit. Like, okay, so is it surprising that the scholar who collects all the Union materials, you know, hooks up <laughs> with somebody who's in Pennsylvania, who's like, ah, unions, and they broke down. Yeah. Uh, you know, given that your work is qualitative, how did you guys try to keep yourselves from beginning and ending with kind of that same goal that I know some of our listeners are going to think about, which is like, oh, okay, two more academics telling us that <laughs> unions are good things. And yeah, they interviewed some union people. And of course, it was a good thing. So talk us through that a little bit, because even I was, I was like, that's a, that's a lot of material from one person's library. So talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I so Theta Theta is a big fan of sort of collecting um, uh, artifacts and and antiques, and she she scours uh, not only the antique malls um, but also eBay. Um, she's a oh. big <laughs> eBay, and so actually those things that that she that that we took pictures of we got for the project. Um, so really. Those, yeah, so those were those weren't things that she had had um, previous to to actually us doing this oh. research. And so, in doing some of the research, when we were we would notice, um, you know, uh, in some of the the uh, materials, some of the, um, for example, like the newsletters that would talk about uh, the pin, you know, mentioned pins, um, uh, dues checkoff pins, for example, um, dues paid by checkoff. And so, uh, then we, we looked for them. Um, and, and that's, and that's sort of how that went. And so, and Theta does have a collection of more than 3000 ribbons. That's one of her, um, <laughs> oh one of goodness. her passions. And so she has ribbons from all the fraternal, uh, organizations and, and for, for the project started looking at union groups as well. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, in that sense, those those artifacts um, came really from the research itself, uh, and and from what we were noticing, from what we were hearing. Um, a lot of the uh, the pictures that you see from from newsletters, so of certain articles, like there was a couple about um, or or images of you know union, uh, like a a union family or, or yes, um, yes. Uh, so that 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 was through um, something that you know some of the the analyses that I had done. Um, in different union halls, essentially, um, of their newsletters. And so, um, and other ways, you know, records that I had gotten from various university archives. Um, And so that gave us a lot of context um, as to what 
these, you know, what what people were doing, what people were um, these different things that people were involved in, like the the different organizations that the union supported. Um, and so that's sort of how we how we got started with those artifacts. I think that in terms of keeping ourselves isolated from um, beginning to end. I think that, you know, Theta, Theta believes very strongly and instilled this in me in um, doing systematic uh, social science research. So, you know, social science research is never going to be, and qualitative research, I should say, is never going to be, um, you know, a statistical matter. And that's something that she's, she's told me. It's not going to be, you know, a standard deviation type thing where you can pinpoint by a coefficient uh, or whatever, but you know it's important. It's always important in research to be systematic and to to understand where um, where your information is coming from, how it lines up with other sources of information. Um, when we were analyzing, for example, the newsletters, um, looking at the how we could compare them, that would you know sort of be an, a, a fair comparison between different newsletters that you know we had spaces and time. Like some of them were you know from this year to this year, and some of them. So there are differences, of course. But the important point is finding out or figuring out a, you know, a system um, and, a, and, and metrics that you can use across the sources and across the material. And so with interviews, that really, the way that that worked was um, looking at trends in what people were saying. Uh, and so in my thesis research early on, what I did was I basically looked through I printed out the the interview, the notes that I had from all my interviews, and I looked at what was in what where the commonalities were, um, and and what you know maybe what I should start looking at in our through the archival materials, um, what types of things we wanted to really zero in on, um, and 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 sort of um, interrogate more. And so I think that um, you know with qualitative research, it's it, it's. It's impossible to to be as precise, I suppose, as in quantitative research. Um, but you get a lot more, I think, out of uh, sort of that rich analysis um, and and always trying to make sure that it's you know, systematic at the end. No, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'll even come out and just say that I think sometimes, especially in political science and in the social sciences in general, we have ended up uh, kind of like econ making math god and yeah. <laughs> stripping, you know, the, the social element out of our studies a little yeah. bit. Uh, so I hear that. And so that's so what I kind of hear you saying there is, is that the interviews, as you looked at them carefully, mm -hmm. helped you both get more and right. structure the other material. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Um, yeah. So sort of those early interviews, um, not so much with the leaders of the international, but when I started talking to members um, and just here in, you know, those early conversations, I don't even know if they were in, you know, official interviews or not, um, but more just conversations that I was having with people, uh, um, you know, like just feeling, feel, you know, feeling trying to figuring out what's out there, which is what Theda told me to do. She said, you know, go see what's out there. So, um, and then looking at trends and patterns and, and what you can sort of extrapolate from those, from those things. I'm going to be honest. One of the things in your union writing material, and this kind of segues well into this, was 
the, the kind of the depth of some of the items that I saw. And that, I mean, obviously not all of it. I mean, like, for example, you get the, gun, the rod and gun stuff, which is interesting, but it was much shorter. You know, some pictures of that. But, but the one that just really struck me was that you have this one union publication that runs a series on knowing your government. And then in, in January of ni- uh, 1955, uh, the particular article you're talking about is, you know, know your government, the Justice Department. And I just about <laughs> laughed out loud because I can't even imagine getting my intro class to read anything with the word Justice Department on it yeah. at all. And, and this is going out broadly and, and it's kind of part of clearly this longer series, right? You know, this is just one yeah. standalone piece in this larger series. And so, uh, you know, as a scholar myself who focuses on communica- uh, political communication, mm-hmm. it seemed to me once again to kind of point to the fact that how much we're willing to read and do might have, uh, have shifted. So as you were looking at these artifacts, you talk about all these times. Did you notice a trend in the way that the communication was happening? Because, again, I just... I can't imagine a union sending that out today. I can't imagine any organization sending out something like that today and having it be read. Did you see that shift over time in the union materials or talk to me about that? I was very fascinated by that. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think that, um, you know, that was that was really interesting. I think that unions in that era really saw themselves as, um, you know, it's emblematic of unions, you know, serving not only as these economic uh, units, but also as sort of real, like, you know, providing education for the community, providing, um, you know, information about services to the community, providing sort of a sense of um, and, and reinforcing uh, a, a, a belief in and a stake in um, government uh, and civic participation. Um, and so, yeah, I, yeah, it is it is interesting that there was such in-depth and these articles about the Justice Department, the Department of Treasury, went where it was a series, you know, through these through these issues of, I think that it, that was the IBEW's uh, newsletter. And so um, I, I think that, I think that that, that did change over time and, and there isn't as much um, sort of interest or uh, expectation perhaps of unions serving that purpose Um Today, obviously, we're getting so much information from so many different sources. It's like source overload. Yeah. Whereas back in this era, um, you know, the main the, this was one of the main sources of you know people's information. It was uh, the union newsletter and un- and the labor. There was a labor newspaper in a lot of these towns as well that was sponsored by um, various unions that would you know sort of chip in. And so um, I think that you know it's it, it's representative of a different role that was being played by, um, that was taken on by unions in that era, um, compared to today. And, and yeah, I think that things did change as we saw more options for, um, where people were getting their information. And that's something that we didn't, we didn't examine that closely in, in, in our research, but I think that is definitely there, um, you know, as communication options, uh, expanded, uh, you know, the, the, the centrality of union um, communications definitely uh, decreased. And, yet that, and I appreciate that because it was something that I think your book really suggested some more work in with some of those trends. Mm-hmm. But if you just had to kind of extrapolate your hypothesis as you move forward, I mean, you, you talk about that kind of the bottom up versus the top down in unions. Do you, do you, if you were, were going to go out and you know, do book number two and you were going to think mm-hmm. about it on those fronts, do you think that might be part of the trend from the top down in unions was there's there's just not space for horizontal communication anymore? 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question because I think that, you know, one of, as we've seen more sort of, uh, managerial and sort of administrative involvement of unions um, as opposed to, you know, the grassroots uh, involvement that w- that was, um, you know, that was really typical of the mid 20th century. Um, there has been much more sort of um, mass communication and you know, like, you know, via whether it's social media or um, I think, you know, websites and, and whatnot, but in, in general, and I, and yet I think that the, the union union's ability to access members and to communicate to members has, uh, has decreased. So I think that that's an interesting question. I, d- I don't know. I don't know um, how I would approach that. I think, uh, you know, it's a good question though. It definitely needs need to be researched some more. Well, I do love it. You know, you know you've done good work when, you're, when your work and your book points to the next set of things that needs to be done, right? You, know, uh, yeah. you, never, you can never answer everything. It's unfortunate. So right. now, you know, the, the next portion of the book uh, really delves deeply into the decline of unions. And, uh, and you set this up as a kind of a culmination of regulation, economics, environmental regulation, and international changes. And it was kind of perfect timing in some ways because my co-host Ken Katkin and I had just spent a better part of an episode here for Labor Day, as we do every year uh, for the politics guys, assessing the state of labor. So I'd love for you to walk us through the decline of labor. Wow, that's a big task. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, just a little bit, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, wow. So there's been, I mean, I think, you know, as we discuss in the book, there's been a lot of things that have uh, sort of culminated in, um, in a decline over time. And, and now, obviously, we're seeing this potential resurgence and um, that, you know, it's up for debate as to how far that's going to go. Um, but I think that, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s, there was a lot of um, economic and political uh, and regulatory uh, changes that affected labor really significantly. Um, so uh, let's start I guess, with, you know, regulatory. I think that um, in the in the 1980s there, you know, with the Reagan era, there was a huge movement to deregulate. Um, and yet in the previous to, to, to his, his era, there was a lot of regulation on the environment and, um, and an increase in, in sort of protection for that, which affected heavy industry like uh, steel and coal. Um, and is still affecting uh, those industries today, um, probably more so than ever. Uh, and so, you know, and, and you see over time the shift in um, reliance on uh, domestically manufactured goods um, and products such as steel to um, internationally uh, uh, imported uh, goods. So, for example, with steel, um, a lot of steel was being produced at the time in China and Japan, um, being imported. Um, now we we talk about steel dumping, uh, how basically subsidized, you know, subsidized steel from uh, from other countries just gets sort of thrown into the <laughs> into the U.S. market without and priced at a, at a at at such a low rate that U.S. companies can't can't really compete. Um, and so the the increase in trade and globalization coincided with um, these regulatory changes that were going on. Um, and then the economics, I think, you know, with with Reagan, um, there were there was a, there was an attack on labor that that I don't think that the Republicans had um, had 
tried, had, had really ventured um, into yet. And, and Reagan started that, that era of unprecedented attacks on labor in trying to sort of undermine um, labor's role even at the table. Um, so uh, whereas previous, pres- previous Republican presidents had sort of, you know, accepted and cooperated with the with the reality that that labor was one of the key players um reagan reagan wanted to and essentially was pretty effective at at challenging that idea that that um the unions should be sitting at the table during these you know big decisions that were being made um and and instead sort of really relied on on um corporate executives and and financial advisors um and so yeah, that was. I think that it 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 started then, and it's continued um, today. Uh, and I guess, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what has what happens in these next several years. There's a lot going on right now, as we know, with labor. Yeah, I mean, and I want to get to talk about some of the the contemporaries on that as well. But uh, to to kind of back up a little bit to Reagan in that era, you know, one of the items, and you're right. I mean, that that there is an era where Republicans begin to shift and say, look, unions are part of potentially the problem when it comes to the decline of some of these industries, and. And, and so in the text, that, that does seem to be one of the areas that maybe you at least downplay. Uh, I looked at some of the uh, IMFs, the Interta- International Monetary Fund's paper on the decline of steel, specifically in the United States. And, you know, their analysis and your guys' analysis, not surprising, largely agrees. But there's this like one last factor that they have <laughs> that you guys don't have, which is kind of almost bolded. It was like, and by the way, the other big issue was labor unions derived costs way too high in the United States mm-hmm. compared to other parts of the, of the country. That wasn't kind of part of your argument. But do you think that was is part of the problem? I mean, you seem to be kind of taking issue a little bit with Reagan there. And fair enough. But, uh, <laughs> but don't you but could unions have been part of the problem as well, like not recognizing that they were effectively pricing themselves out? I mean, yeah. So I think I think that that's that's an argument that that definitely is is valid, and that a lot of people advance um, in terms of that unions were part of the problem and maybe shot themselves in the foot a little bit, um, and and were um, I guess in in their expect unrealistic in their expectations um, in terms of uh, you know pricing getting priced out by other countries industries. Um, I think. I think that we, you know, focus on just another element of the conversation. Um, so, you know, whereas I think that that is that is part of it, um, part of the decline. Uh, you know, it's just not something that our our are that we're contributing to, I guess, um, I would say. So, I mean, I do think that the, that unions played a role that maybe, um, you know, in some cases were were not co- were not at the table and really willing to cooperate, um, in, in a, in sort of a fair and realistic way. Um, but it's not, I I guess I would just say that it's not something that we focus on, um, in, in our book, just because it's, it's, I think that that's more of like a, you know, an economics argument. Um, whereas we're more looking at like the sociological changes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, really, the only place where I had a, a spot where I thought, ah, I'm not sure where I agree. And I was kind of looking at um, it wasn't even quite there so much as when uh, as you get to the end and you're in that conversation about the declines of union, uh, uh, you effectively say, look, it didn't have to necessarily be this way. Right. Elites could have better helped uh, these corporations and thereby saved the unions. 
Um, and yet, and again, I recognize there, there's some bias here too. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the authors like Scott Linscombe have argued that, you know, as a matter of fact, few other industries in American history have as had a high as a prolonged subsidy as the U.S. steel industry, right? And yet they still failed. And even more recently, uh, you know, with uh, changing things in, uh, 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 with uh, NAFTA uh, and Trump era tariffs, doesn't it right. really bring about any major steals? And so I was a little bit skeptical that maybe, okay, if it had just been a little bit more protectionism, or as you guys allude to, had, had we had like an Obama who was willing to bail out the, uh, uh, the steel industry the way that we bailed out the auto industry, this really would have saved unions. Uh, what do you think? I mean, do you really think more protectionism and subsidies really could bring back or have fixed that? Or is that... Just talk through that a little bit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that that's a very fair point. I mean, it's it's impossible to know, um, you know, the counterfactual, wh- whether something would have made uh, the difference. And, and so I, I think that what we're sort of arguing is that different policy choices could have made a difference. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was a, it, in the sense that inaction is action, right? Um, and so in, in um, declining to sort of help out the, the U.S. steel industry and in, um, refusing to recognize sort of the eminent domain arguments that some of the steel workers were, were making in um, Western Pennsylvania and Ohio about um, the steel plants that were shutting down. Um, you know, I think that had there been more support uh, and had there been, you know, sort of a, a different elite consensus um, that could have could have led to sl- different outcomes. Um, I, I mean, I, I recognize your point that you know there's there's been support for steel, the steel industry, um, the Trump tariffs failed uh, to bring you know to bring back steel. Um, so, you know. I, I don't think that we're we're saying that things, you know, you can forever prevent, um, you know, the march towards progress. But I think that we are saying um, that there could have been very different realities. There could have been different lived realities for for union members um, had there been different sort of decisions made by elites during these key moments. Um, And, you know, it's I understand your point for sure. Um, But, you know, I I do think that the, the policy choices that that are made uh, impact what we what we've seen and and which which has been sort of the the failure of um, U.S. manufacturing to even maintain much of a role at all on the world stage and so um, you know that that's that's our perspective um, but but I understand your point yeah. Now th- this kind of brings you to the you know, brings us to the third half of the book or the third the third half brings us to the final <laughs> third of your book. I can do math. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, this is where you really start trying to look at what do what is the post-union union man looking like in that way? Mm-hmm. And you do yeah. some really I mean, it, one, of, one of them was one of those moments where it just seems so brilliant in retrospect. He's like, I oh, man, who wouldn't have thought of this? But of course, you guys thought of it, not anybody else. Were you doing these like bumper sticker analysis at a local <laughs> USW parking lot? I thought, oh, that's that was brilliant. Um, it's to kind of get at that shift in those uh, that social shift among unions as unions decline, and and kind of really trying to document uh, that that rightward, uh, not maybe necessarily shift, but emergence mm-hmm. right among yeah. among the population. So. You know, for the kind of data you were getting there, that qualitative data at the in the the last uh, the last third of the book, where you're doing things like the bumper sticker analysis, you know, how did you get to that and and walk listeners through like because you, know, you saw this shift towards Tea Party and gun clubs? Talk to us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> the bumper sticker uh, analysis was was pretty organic. Um, I'll be honest. So I, I did a lot of research just um, during my during the time that I was uh, doing thesis research, uh, driving around um, Western Pennsylvania, um, walking around these different uh, old mill towns, many of which are uh, shells of their former selves. I talked to some shopkeepers. Um, you know, the pandemic made that a little bit hard, but um, you know, still you can still drive around, you can still take pictures and everything like that. Um, and so, you know, at one point I, I was just driving by, uh, <laughs> USW, um, I think that the first one that I did was the Edgar Thompson plant, um, which is in Braddock, PA. Um, I was driving by and I saw the, the sign that said, um, you know, employee parking and <laughs> that's sort of how that started. Um, and so I thought, Huh. I wonder. I wonder. Um, you know, if people are are broadcasting their political beliefs um, with bumper stickers, and so I I drove in the parking lot. It said no trespassing, but you know, hey. Um, Listen, we're uh, not in Pennsylvania right now. You're fair. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, so so I was just and, and I started looking at at the at bumper stickers. I really just was you know driving through the parking lot and and for a couple minutes really, and then and then left. And then I was I met with Theta, and she. I I could just see when I told her, I, you know, I looked, I looked at these bumper stickers, I took pictures and I'm wondering, like, this seems like it's, you know, really clear evidence of something that has changed. Um, and, you know, it seems like a real shift in not only um, people's politics, but also the willingness to outwardly express, um, you know, something that is clearly an anti-union uh, uh, affiliation. And so, um, and, and she said, go, you know, she, she, that's basically when we decided that I would go back and sort of do more of a systematic analysis of, um, of the numbers of, of this, of the stickers. And, um, and, and also I, I looked at li- license plates where people were from and that type of thing. Um, so that, <laughs> that, that's how the bumper sticker analysis came to be. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I do think that it was, that it was a really interesting way because, um, you know, we didn't do survey research. We didn't do, you know, sort of a broad based, uh, like, you know, type of poll within these different locals. It just wasn't something that was feasible within our time frame or with what we were working with. And so, um, this was sort of a proxy, uh, you know, an imperfect prop- proxy for sure. Um, but a proxy to understand how people were, ex- you know, people's political views, but also how people were expressing their views. And, and, and as I said, the willingness to, to take a stand publicly within, um, within the workplace, uh, you know, uh, uh, that was, you know, that contravened the union's, uh, sort of outward, uh, policy objectives. Now, I have to say, I mean, we, we couldn't have picked a better week to be talking about your book in a lot of ways because, <laughs> you know, this is the week that President Biden uh, has headed to the, the UAW picket line with striking auto workers. And he comes at an invitation of President Sean Fain. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, of course, yesterday, Donald Trump, as a bit of his counter programming for the, the second uh, Republican debate, heads to Michigan, uh, which isn't exactly where the book is located. But again, to some union country as well yeah, to speak absolutely. to union members. Uh, even though in his case, you know, he's not invited by the UAW leadership. And there was a lot of there was a lot of criticism. Uh, uh, Rosenthal and Politico, uh, in his opinion piece, was really critical of President Trump, basically just saying, like, look, all he's trying to do is, in his words, quote, hoodwink union members into believing he supports them, end quote. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had just read your book. And so all I could help thinking of was, <laughs> I don't know. I think you might be wrong, Rosenthal. <laughs> right. 
because, yeah. you know, all I could hear was, okay, so leadership in the union is inviting Biden, and but they're not really connected necessarily with who their union members are anymore. And so although I think a lot of people were really kind of critical, I thought, well, maybe maybe Trump is, I hate to say this, because again, I'm not, I'm not exactly a Trump fan by any means. You know, yeah. maybe Trump is right. What does your book tell us about what's going on this week and about, you know, yeah. I mean, again, your kind of an initial response is to say, okay, this makes sense for Biden, doesn't make sense for Trump. But after reading your book, I can't help but say, maybe this makes a lot of sense for Trump. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, I, and I, I think that that, that is, that would be sort of my, my understanding. I think that Trump, Trump knows that the members don't always listen to their to their uh, leaders, uh, to the to the international leaders, um, and Trump Trump realized has realized that with uh, the steelworkers as well. I mean, he, when yeah. he was president, he invited um, members of the steelworkers. I actually talked to some of them who actually went to the White House um, and, and for for the signing of the steel tariffs, uh, you know, uh, the imposing of the steel steel tariffs. And so, um, you know, he 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 realizes that there's that there's space and distance between. Um, the positions of the rank and file and, um, you know, what the what the union leadership is, who the union leadership is endorsing, what the union leadership is saying. Um, and, and so I think that that reflects, you know, his, him going to, to Michigan, I think, reflects that he he knows that he's um, he's in in play there. Right. Um, and and I think that in terms of, in terms of Biden going to, uh, to Michigan, um, and being the first president to, to walk the picket line, um, he, I think that Democrats have come, come to understand that they have to work for labor's vote. Um, and that's something that for a long time, I think, uh, Democrats took for granted, um, and, and realized, uh, probably in 2016, um, with the fall of the, uh, the blue wall or, in the Rust Belt that, you know, really couldn't, we couldn't afford, um, our Democrats couldn't afford to, to do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a really interesting moment. I think that the UAW strike is rep is comes at a time where there's so much momentum and so much interest in, in unions and in, um, labor that, that it'll be really interesting to see sort of how this plays out, um, both for, for the union and for, for what they're advocating for, but also politically, um, as, you know, as it's clear that the, the candidates are making this into a, um, into, into an electoral issue as well. Yeah. Well, I can't help but think, you know, there again at the end of your book where you talk about some current union members saying, look, one of the things that's so inviting about Trump specifically was, okay, I get he's not always doing what he wanted him to do, but he, I, I feel heard, right? You know, he's, you know, the, 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 this is what I, I, I'm heard even though there's not the outcome I'm always looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that was, that's, it's something that, it's so simple, right? Yet, yet it, it's it's so important that 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 the leadership um, and the people who are trying to 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 get someone's vote actually show show up, right? Yeah. And 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 try to understand what those people are are experiencing and the hardships that they're that they're going through. And um, Trump was uh, capitalized on that in a very very significant way. Um, and I think since then, Democrats have been trying to understand how they can, you know, sort of work back, work backwards for, for working people um, and try to get people's, people's votes back. So as we kind of uh, come to the end of the show, I'd love to kind of ask you a last question here. And that is, I mean, in many ways, I couldn't help but see, I mean, your book is for obviously a scholarly and a general audience. 
But you also seem to clearly be targeting unions themselves a little bit and saying, look, here might be ways you could do better. And I even hear that in your answer, like, OK, mm-hmm. you know, it, you Democrats are going to have to think radically different about the uh, overlooking uh, working people in the Rust Belt. And mm-hmm. and so, as I mentioned here earlier, you know, we kind of do this uh, recap on Labor Day every year. I'm curious written the book, you've looked at all of this, you've talked to all of these individuals. So if, if, if I know this isn't going to happen, but if you got voted the next leader of the steel union or the, <laughs> or the, uh, yeah. the auto union, what actions would you either take or would you suggest if you were talking to that leadership again now to say, hey, look, here's what you need to do moving forward? Or, or mm-hmm. do you think that decline is just kind of inevitable and behind? Yeah, I mean, so so I don't think that decline is inevitable. I think that, um, you know, looking at some of the unions that have been successful, uh, and one of the things that we do in the book is look at how the IBEW has been pretty successful in maintaining a sense of identity and, and loyalty. Um, and I think that, so in answer, in, in, in response to your question, what, what I would do, um, I think that I would try as, as much as possible to invest in local leadership. Um, I think that a lot of what happens um, in unions happens on the local level. Um, and right now, I think unions have really um, large overhead. Uh, so administrative, um, you know, a lot of money and time and resources going into the administration of the union. Um, so I think one of the things that I would do is sort of try to try to reduce that um, bureaucracy a little bit and put more power back into the hands of of local leadership. Um, I think another thing that's really important um, and and that some of the actually like the service union workers, um, SEIU has done really well um, and some others is community building um, and and understanding that the union doesn't just exist as an economic unit, as a collective bargaining unit, um, but that the role of the union and if it does if the union hopes to have a political role, it has to be larger than that. Um, because in the end, people make their decisions about um, politics and 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 how they position themselves on on different policy issues, um, at least in part by uh, you know un- through their understanding of um, of their of their circumstances, their experiences, their surroundings, and that encompasses um, in the case of union members that encompasses their their union. Um, and so I would I would try to try to reinvest in um, in, in in community building uh, within within local unions and, and and give some of the power back to those to those local leaders as well. Well, Lainey, thank you so much for being on The Politics Guys, and thank you so much for taking all this time to work through your book. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, a, it's been so much fun, and thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so glad that you wanted to talk about it, really. Oh, no, it, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I always love doing authors, so just thanks for doing that. And again, uh, again, the book is Rust Belt Union Blues, Why Working Class Voters Are Turning Away from the Democratic Party. And we're going to have a link uh, to purchase that book in the show notes. So that is the it for the show today and for myself and for Lainey. And I'll just say that as you're heading to the show notes, you should definitely be checking out Lainey's book, but you should also be checking out uh, becoming a supporter of The Politics Guys. Without supporters, we can't make this podcast happen. You get all kind of really cool things like ad-free versions of the show that you're listening to right now, but of course also exclu- exclusive shows midweek as well. 
So if you want to take a look at the book or you'd like to think about becoming a supporter of the politics guys, head on down there to the links and you can click on that or you can head to patreon.com slash politics guys. You can also hit us up on Venmo where we're at politics guys or through PayPal. But again, the book and supporting the show is all down there in the show notes. Uh, if you'd like to get the midweek show, but you're not in a position to financially do that right now, that's not a problem at all. Just reach out to the show at Mike at politicsguys.com and we can get you set up right then. Whether you're a supporter or not, we'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, or review this podcast. And of course, also do the same thing for Lainey's book and share that on social media. If you've got any questions before us, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. And again, you'll find all of that in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode soon. I hope you'll join us then.